First we had Justin with a bow tie, and then Titus was up here uh, during the children's sermon with a bow tie, and now Eric. I have bought myself a bow tie, and when I learn how to tie it, I'm going to wear it. Let's uh, join our hearts together in prayer. Our Father, I pray that uh, You would have the Spirit continually reveal to us our interest in Jesus Christ. And I pray that You would open to us the riches of Your love for us in Him as we open this glorious passage of Scripture. Father, I pray that we would flee from all self-righteousness, that Christ might be for us all in all, we ask in His name. Amen. Have any of you heard the story of the frog that fell into the pail of milk? Uh, The frog tried every possible way to jump out, but he never could because the sides were too high. And because he was floating in the milk, he could never get enough leverage to spring himself out. So he did the only thing he could do. He paddled, and he paddled, and he paddled some more. He paddled so much that he churned the milk into butter, and then he could jump to freedom. So have any of you heard that story before? Nobody? Yeah, I'm sure a few. Yeah, I see a couple of hands. You know, this, you know, I was ex- expecting that with all the graduations taking place yesterday, that maybe some of you heard it this past weekend. The moral of the story is that you just need to keep on paddling, keep on working, keep on doing your best, and you will make it. It's such a popular story because it describes the way most Americans understand the way of salvation. It's the idea that God helps those who help themselves. Kent Hughes says that despite the fact that Amazing Grace is our favorite hymn, most people think that if you just do your best, you'll somehow make it to heaven. The point is that most people think that we get our salvation We get our way to heaven the old-fashioned way, that we earn it. But of course, it is not our self-effort. It is not uh, our works. We know that earning our salvation is impossible. We can never, ever earn our salvation. In fact, we can never put ourselves to into a position to ever deserve our salvation. If you followed Paul's arguments from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 3, you understand that salvation comes only to those who have God's perfect and complete righteousness. Furthermore, you also know that none are righteous because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We saw last week 
that Paul says in verse uh, 21 of chapter 3. But now, a righteousness from God has been manifested. And this righteousness from God was manifested in the perfect life, in the propitiatory death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's point is that you can only receive God's salvation not by works, but only through Jesus Christ. The only way that you can receive it is casting all your faith and your trust into Him. I intend no disrespect to the Apostle Paul, but I must point out, if you're going to understand this passage that Paul is playing the part of a lawyer. Uh, And what he's doing is he is prosecuting the case for justification by faith. Once you see Paul uh, as a lawyer, it becomes clear that in chapter 4, what he's doing is he is calling two witnesses to the stand to testify to the case that he is making. Uh, he is a lawyer of grace. So his first witness is Abraham. Abraham is known also as the father of the Jews. And then his second witness is David, who is, of course, the, king, the, the greatest king of the Jews. So in this sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to invite Abraham to the witness stand and he's going to stay on the witness stand, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll keep him on the witness stand from verses 9 through 22, and then we'll dismiss him and have David uh, come to the witness stand in verses 6 through 8. So, Paul calls Abraham to testify for him as to the... um, this idea that we can only be justified by faith alone. So, verses 1 through 5, Abraham was counted righteous, not by works, but by faith. Now, the Jews obviously uh, revered Abraham. He was the father of their faith. But they viewed Abraham through the lens of their works-oriented um, the way of salvation. They believed that Abraham lived a perfectly righteous life. And therefore, God loved him. Therefore, God accepted him. One Jewish scribe said that lived a hundred years before uh, Jesus lived here on earth. Uh, this Jewish scribe said that, and I quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Alright, ladies. What if you were Abraham's wife? And God, and Abraham, first of all, in disobedience to the Lord, it, it appears, went down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. So he wasn't trusting the Lord. Went down to Egypt. And because his wife was very beautiful, and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, uh, saw... You, Abraham's wife, and Abraham said to you, Say that you're my sister. Go and, and uh, let him take you home. 
Would you say that Abraham was perfect in all his ways? No, of course not. You know, another Jewish scribe said that Abraham had no need of repentance because the Lord never appoints repentance unto the righteous. And so these Jewish scholars have to do some pretty fancy dancing to find their way around Abraham's sins. Paul in verses 1 through 5 hits this error head on. First of all, he said that Abraham was that if Abraham was righteous by his own works, then he had reason to boast because he essentially saved himself. That's what Paul's argument is. If you by your obedience are able to lift yourself to God, then you have reason to boast. But Paul knows that all Jews and any thinking person that knows anything about God would know that it would be foolish for you to claim that you have any right to boast before God. God, I am so righteous, I save myself. Hear how foolish that sounds? So then Paul says in verse 3 something that surprises us. Uh, Because he indeed says that Abraham is righteous. But it was a righteousness that was counted or credited to Abraham by God. And this righteousness was credited to him or counted to him by faith. He says this by quoting Genesis 15.6. Now, if you remember, it's been a, uh, what, two or three years since we went through um, the book of Genesis. But if you will remember back, uh, Genesis 15 is where this passage uh, comes from. And in the context, Abraham was questioning God. God, you have brought me here to this land, you have made all these promises, but I don't have any heir. I don't have a child that's born to me. Eliezer, my servant, is going to receive all the inheritance. And God told Abraham to go outside and look at the stars. And it was a dark night. And Abraham looked at all the the countless uh, stars spread against the very dark sky. And then the Lord said to Abraham... Number the stars if you were able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. And, the, and then the Scripture that Paul quotes, Genesis fifteen six. Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. All Abraham did was believe the Lord. Yet the Lord counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. Now this doesn't mean that Abraham's faith resulted in Abraham living a perfectly righteous life. Abraham continued to commit sins throughout his life. Uh, It means something completely different than that. It means that God credited to Abraham's account God's perfect righteousness. It means that God treated Abraham as though Abraham were living a perfectly righteous life. Abraham was not righteous in and of himself. He was not blameless. But God was treating him as if he were. 
That's what Genesis 15 verse 6 is saying. God did not just treat Abraham as if he had never sinned. Rather, He treated Abraham as if he had always obeyed. In Genesis 15, 6, Abram, or Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In God's sight, Abraham was treated as if he were still in the Garden of Eden and had never sinned. This was Abraham standing before God. It wasn't a part righteousness. It was a full, complete righteousness. How does God treat us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? He treats us. He counts us. He credits to us His righteousness. He treats us as if we have never sinned. He looks at us, looks upon us, as if we had always obeyed. This is the righteousness that we need for salvation. This is the righteousness that God freely gives us through faith in Jesus Christ. Does this sound too good to be true? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, It doesn't say who justifies the person who has worked his way toward God or who was smart enough to uh, have faith. Rather, he justifies the ungodly. He justifies the wicked. Abraham, in his actions, he still acted ungodly. He was acting a whole lot more righteous simply because uh, God converted him and he was living in God's presence. He was no longer a, um, a worshiper of the moon as he had been. And there was a pattern of righteousness, but Abraham still acted very ungodly. Yet God justifies the ungodly, treats us as if we never, ever sinned. God doesn't wait until you've cleaned yourself up to make yourself worthy in His sight to give you the the gift of salvation. So Abram, or Abraham, was counted righteous by faith. Also, Abraham uh, was counted righteous by faith before he was circumcised. Look at verses 9 through 12. I'll read verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that, say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. This is a master stroke of genius on Paul's part. This is the essence, or being circumcised was the essence of what it meant to be Jewish. According to Jewish theology, one could not be saved without first being circumcised. But Abraham was counted as righteous well before 
he was circumcised. Abraham was credited as being righteous in God's sight in Genesis 15.6, but he did not receive the command to be circumcised until Genesis 17. At the very least, a full 14 years passed between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. And Paul's point is that circumcision could not possibly be a condition for righteousness or for salvation for Abraham. And the same goes for baptism or any religious ritual. Salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is through God's righteousness alone that we receive by faith, not by ritual. So Abraham was counted righteous by faith before he was circumcised. Abraham was also counted righteous by faith before the law came into existence. Paul still has Abraham on the witness stand. Paul is now on a roll. Abraham was counted righteous by faith, Genesis 15.6. He was counted righteous by faith before he was circumcised. He was counted righteous by faith before the law even came into existence. Look at verses 15 or 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the uh, for if it is the adherents of the law who are made to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Not only was Abraham counted righteous by faith before circumcision, he was counted righteous um, by faith before the law even came into existence. For the Jews. To be saved, you had to be circumcised and you had to be uh, obeying the law. But Abraham lived over 400 years before Moses even wrote the law. Not only that, then Paul reminds us in verse 15 that the law only brings wrath. The law is a perfect reflection of God's perfect righteousness. And as such, the law acts for us as a mirror or a measuring stick by which we measure our own righteousness. God's righteousness, as it is reflected in the law, is infinite. It's perfect. God's law says that we must be perfect, not only in our actions, but in our thoughts, in our words, even in the motives of our hearts. How infinitely far short we fall of God's infinite righteousness. Romans 3.23 tells us we, uh, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law demonstrates our sinfulness. So that's what Paul means in verse 15, that the law brings wrath. It shows us just how worthy we are of God's wrath. So what Paul is doing here in verses 13 through 15 is he is destroying the Jewish contention that Abraham's righteousness came only 
by, first of all, his circumcision, secondly, by his law keeping. You know, this would be very shocking for a Jewish person to hear. Very shocking indeed. But then what Paul says in verses 16 and 17 would be like sitting a Jewish person down in an electric chair. Um, Because what Paul says next is that God counted Abraham righteous by faith even before Abraham became a Jew or before Abraham became an Israelite. In other words, God counted Abraham righteous while he was still a Gentile. Listen to verses 16 and 17. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherit of the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul had implied this very or several times in verses 9 through 15, but now he's explicit. Abraham is not only the father of the Jews, He is also the father of the Gentiles. Abraham is the father of many nations, he says in verse 17, because he was saved while he was still a Gentile. Paul makes the the argument in many other places in his letters that Gentiles have equal share to Abraham's faith as the Jews do. Abraham was also counted righteous by faith alone. We see in verses 18 through 22, we see this very um, clearly. What Paul does, he feels like he's made his case that uh, justification is by faith alone. But now he wants to give us an example of what what faith looks like. Okay, you've now been convinced that justification is only by faith alone. What does this faith look like? So he demonstrates the nature of saving faith in verses 18 through 22. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. So... Abraham realizes essentially his body is dead. That he is unable to um, produce a child. And not only that, but Sarah, his wife, is well beyond childbearing age. And so, against all hope, against all appearances, Abraham believes God. What is faith? Faith is trusting in God's ability to save even when it doesn't look like we should be saved. 
think about all your sins. You think about all the ways that you have dishonored God. You think about all the ways that you deserve hell forever. Should God love you? Should God love me? But He promises to justify the ungodly. And so faith is trusting in God in spite of appearances. Trusting in God regardless of how we feel about ourselves. God promises to justify the ungodly. However you feel about yourself. I know people who may struggle with depression may feel like it is difficult that that it would be beyond God to love them because they don't feel like they don't have a whole lot of um, of concern for themselves. Their life feels sad and depressed. So how could God love them? But God promises to justify the ungodly, regardless of how you feel. Also. Um, God or Abraham, he believed God in spite of all appearances, in spite of how he may have felt. He also believed God in His Word, in His promises. Here again in um, in verse um, twenty, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. God had promised. And so he cast his faith into God's Word. Thirdly, faith centers upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm moving us ahead just real quickly before I take us back to David. Verses 23 and 24. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so the, the, the Abraham's faith was not faith in himself. It was not faith in his faith. It was faith in God who would raise the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. So, measure your own faith. Is it faith in what appears to be the case or what you could think could be the case? Is it faith based on your feelings? Or is it faith in God in spite of your feelings, in spite of your sins, in spite of anything? Because your faith is directed towards God, it's also directed toward His Word and toward His promise, and ultimately is directed toward um, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I want us to look backwards at verses uh, 6 through 8, and examine David. We want to call him to the witness stand. Paul quotes David from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. For those of you who are familiar with Psalm 32, you will remember that it is the companion psalm to Psalm 51. It is David's prayer where he acknowledges his sin against Uriah. David committed adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. 
and she became pregnant. Then to cover his sin, David conspired to have Uriah killed. In other words, David was guilty of premeditated murder. As you study the Old Testament, as you study the book of Leviticus and the the sacrificial laws, no provision was made for such premeditated sins as murder or adultery. In other words, David deserved the death penalty and he deserved God's everlasting wrath. David's case was hopeless. There was nothing he could do but cast himself on God's mercy. And if we were to read Psalm 32 in its entirety, or if we were to read Psalm 51 in its entirety, we'd find that David was well aware that there were no sacrifices that were available for him to offer to atone for his sin. So what did David do? He simply acknowledged his guilt and he cast himself in faith upon the mercy of God. And what did David find? He found God to be merciful. Listen to Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 4. And listen to it within the backdrop of David's sin, his premeditated murder, his adultery, his lying. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Any of you committed murder? Any of you conspired to commit murder? Yeah, we all have in our hearts when we've hated someone. David not only conspired, he committed murder. He had no hope in the sacrificial offerings of atonement. All he could do is cast himself on the mercy of God and in faith believe the promises that God would justify the ungodly. Where do you find yourself this morning in regard to God? Do you believe that you are beyond God's redemption? Hopefully, after the the last three chapters of Romans, you don't believe that you're ahead of the game. So maybe you're thinking, well, I am far behind the game. I am so unrighteous that God would not love me. Or I don't love myself. How could God love me? God promises to justify the ungodly. Or even for those of you who are Christians, you're struggling with ongoing sin. And you've struggled not only for days and months, but for years and decades. And you say, I have moved beyond God's ability or willingness to love me. What you're doing is you are getting things backwards. You're starting with your sanctification and using that to be the basis 
for your assurance of justification. What Paul is instructing us to do here is to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, to look at the promises of God, to remember and believe that God justifies the ungodly wherever we are, however long our sin, however great our sin. David, again, he's still on the witness stand. He's on the witness stand for us. He committed adultery. To cover up his adultery, he committed murder. And yet, he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds, whose wicked deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is good news for all of us. Because as Joe Belisario so ably reminded us, we all are sinners. We all are ungodly. We all are unworthy of God's love. But praise the Lord, He loves us so much that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. There's one interesting passage that I want to remind you of or call your attention to uh, at the end of Romans chapter 4. It says in... um, I think it's uh, verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead. He didn't weaken in his faith. He didn't waver in his faith. But yet, chapter... 15, he's counted righteous and given this promise that he will have the offspring. Chapter 16, he takes his concubine to try and uh, fulfill the promise. Is that a weakening in faith? Well, it appears that he believed God's promise. And being a sinner, And remember, we've been defining sin as putting ourselves in the place of God. Who of us doesn't continue to do this? Abraham put himself in the place of God. He thought that he could find a way for that promise to be answered by taking Hagar and bearing offspring through her. Who of us hasn't gone in the wrong direction while at the same time being unwavering in our faith. I wanted to read for you in conclusion the first two stanzas from uh, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. This hymn is not found in our uh, hymnal. It goes, Dear refuge of my weary soul, on Thee when sorrows rise, on Thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. And her faith uh, was fainting, but yet it was still a hope that was relying on God. And so it continues, 
to thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, all my hopes decline. Yet gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Christians can certainly have a halting faith. Christians can certainly get so overwhelmed by the circumstances of life that their comfort seems to fail. And their hope and their faith can seem to weaken. But yet, a Christian, regardless how weak and how gloomy their outlook may be, clings to the Lord Jesus Christ, even when they feel like it's only by their fingernails. Wherever you are this morning, however great your sins have been, however great, great your sins are right now in your life, the Lord Jesus Christ came and died for sinners. God promises to justify the the ungodly. Do you believe it? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that You would help the soul who struggles to believe to cast their anchor, the anchor of their faith, fully into the Lord Jesus Christ. For He will never fail them. Father, I pray that all who believe that they may be beyond Your reach, beyond Your grasp, Father, that You would remind them that Your arm is long even beyond uh, our sin and that You are able to uh, bring us back. You are able to hold us firm uh, for Yourself. For neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither height nor depth, width or breadth, nothing under all creation, even our sin, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we pray in His name. Amen.